Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Joe McCormick. My regular co-host, Robert Lamb, is out today, so I'm going to be recording this episode solo. Uh, one announcement, Rob and I are both going to be out the rest of this week and the very beginning of next week. Uh, so we've got some vault episodes lined up for you starting tomorrow, but I should be back with all new listener mail on Monday, the 27th, and we'll have uh, other new episodes for you sometime that week, I believe on uh, Wednesday. So right on to your messages. This first message comes from Raphael and it's a response to our episodes on tea. Raphael says, hello, Robert and Joe. I just finished part three of your exploration of tea, and I wanted to say I really enjoyed these episodes. I'm not a big tea drinker, though various tea varieties seem to proliferate in our kitchen cabinet. That said, Rob's poetry readings made me brew a cup immediately. As a food scientist, I always appreciate episodes where you get into the history, science, and culture of foods. What put the T-series over the top for me was the digression in Part 3 on the topics of rheology and philosophy. This is why I love your show. I wanted to expand on a few comments you made in Part 2 while talking about you lose preference for blue-glazed teacups uh, and Pliny the Elder. I couldn't agree more with your point that visual presentation can really influence our perception of the flavor of foods and beverages. I've been involved in proprietary research that showed that changing food color can influence taste perception. Broadly speaking, the effect of color on food is well known and significant. A quick web search found an open access review by Charles Spence titled On the Psychological Impact of Food Color. 
Uh, flavor intensity, detection thresholds, and even basic flavor identification can all be manipulated with color changes. It is amazing what a little food coloring can do. Uh, yes, Raphael, that is true. And so we made general reference in the episode to the idea that, uh, say, changing the color of the the plates or cups in which food and beverage are presented can affect the uh, perception of the properties of that food or beverage. I wanted to highlight a few specifics about the background color in particular, because that was the original context uh, uh, you, Lou, talking about blue glazed teacups. So how much does the color of a cup or a plate affect what you taste or uh, or how you consume food? I found a review article by the same author you mentioned, uh, Raphael. This is also by Charles Spence. Charles Spence is a uh, psychologist at Oxford University who studies food perception. Uh, th this was a different review. It was called Background Color and Its Impact on Food Perception and Behavior, published in Food Quality and Preference in the year 2018. And so after reviewing the existing research as of this year, Spence writes, uh, this year being 2018 when it was published, Spence writes that there is clear evidence that, quote, while people obviously cannot literally taste the plate, the color of the plate, bowl, glass, cup, cutlery, pot, and package in slash against which a product is seen can certainly influence how appealing a food looks, what it tastes like, and even how much we end up consuming and or serving ourselves. Uh, however, the, the interesting thing I found from reading his conclusions is that Background color and food perception relationships are not static and linear. They are dynamic and complex. So it's not just like, oh, food tastes better on a red plate or something like that. Instead, Spence writes that uh, one example is a trend of findings that desserts taste sweeter when served off of white plates than when served off of black plates. And meanwhile, black plates may enhance the experience of savory dishes. And so the dynamic aspect is that uh, whether these effects are desirable or not may depend on the properties of the food itself and the expectations of the diner. So uh, if, a, if a dessert tends to taste sweeter off of a white plate, and that dessert is already considered too sweet in isolation, it may actually be more enjoyable if it's consumed off of a black plate, dulling the sweetness, whereas uh, the, the uh, opposite holds true as well. A dessert that people consider not sweet enough can be enhanced by a white plate, heightening the perception of sweetness. And there are other interesting findings as well that uh, Spence mentions in his conclusions. Uh, one is that a, when a food is considered an unhealthy indulgence, people seem to naturally eat less of it when it is presented on a red plate. And uh, the reasons for these effects of, of color on food perception and consumption behavior are still up for debate. Like, do the colors function by triggering environmentally salient associations between certain colors and certain types of nutrient contents? You know, could it be that when you see this color in the natural environment, it often has this kind of uh, maybe a poisoning danger associated with it or this kind of uh, nutrient reward associated with it? Or are these associations learned or are they simply a result of color effects on mood and questions like that. Uh, and I think uh, those are not fully solved yet. But anyway, back to Raphael's message. However, I think you may both have done plenty wrong. 
there was a bit of chuckling over Pliny. This is our reference to Pliny the Elder. Uh, There was a bit of chuckling over Pliny writing that Sapa boiled in copper pots tasted bitter, while the same beverage boiled in lead pots tasted sweet. At least in this case, Pliny may have been accurately reporting a real phenomenon. If his starting grape juice had been sitting around long enough to form some acetic acid, Pliny may well have been cooking up some lead acetate, also known as sugar of lead. Lead acetate is a toxic compound with a sweet taste. By the same token, dissolved copper has a metallic and bitter taste, at least according to Determination of the Taste Threshold of Copper in Water by Zacharias et al. The lead pot might actually have made the sapa taste sweet, though also poisonous. And to uh, come back on this, yes, Raphael, this is a great point to explore. Uh, For those of you who don't know or don't remember the original context of of this uh, little uh, digression we did, some years back, Rob and I had an episode where we talked about people intentionally consuming lead acetate as a medicine or a food additive, which you absolutely should not do. It is highly poisonous. Uh, but one of the examples we discussed was a passage in Pliny the Elder where he writes that leaden pots and not copper pots should be used for the production of sapa. Uh, sapa was a, a like a sweet syrup used by the ancient Romans. I, I think used kind of in the way that you know a bartender might use simple syrup today. It was a sweetening agent, though not as sweet as today's simple syrup would be. But um, it was a it was a sweetening agent, a syrup that the ancient Romans made by boiling down and reducing a liquid called must, which was a type of lightly fermented grape juice, kind of a weak wine. And the reasoning we discussed in that episode is exactly what Raphael is saying here, that uh, Pliny's recommendation was probably because boiling must in a metal pot would cause some chemical reaction between the acetic acid, which is the type of acid that is in vinegar, Uh, and uh, the acetic acid in the juice and the metal walls of the pot. So if it's copper pot, this is going to result in copper acetate salts, which taste disgusting, bitter, nasty, metallic uh, flavor. And uh, if you boil it in a lead pot, on the other hand, the same thing happens, but it forms lead acetate, which is very poisonous, but is also sweet. So, yes, Raphael, your analysis is spot on. I think Pliny's advice about uh, pot metal selection was exactly right from a flavor point of view, just without any understanding of the dire health effects that could flow from this. Uh, And uh, to supplement this, uh, I wanted to read from the entry on sugar of lead in the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. This entry was written by the American chemist Michelle M. Francel. Francel writes, quote, Chemical analysis of sapa produced according to the recipes dating from the classical Roman period using kettles of similar metallic composition as those found at Pompeii and other sites suggests that the lead content of sapa was 850 milligrams per liter, many thousand times higher than what is generally allowable in drinking water. Even diluted and used sparingly, sweetening with sapa posed a serious risk. However, to come back on uh, what you said, Raphael, about the, the validity of Pliny's idea that, that it really did make the, the sapa sweeter to use a lead pot, uh, Francel argues in this entry uh, in the Oxford handbook here that the amount of sugar of lead produced by boiling down a pot of must probably would not have made a major contribution to the sweetness of the syrup because it would only represent a taste change equivalent to adding a pinch of sugar uh, to a product that was already pretty sweet. So, you know, the sapa would already have 
levels of glucose and fructose equivalent to roughly one cup of table sugar per liter of liquid. So in the specific example of Sapa, the preference for lead pots over copper might be more due to the fact that lead pots do not produce the disgusting bitter copper uh, flavor than to the small amount of additional sweetness that the lead would add. And while we're on the subject, I just uh, thought I should add that the practice of intentionally adding lead to food products was not limited to this sweetening effect for Sapa in ancient Rome. Uh, up until the 19th and 20th centuries, lead metal and lead salts were used uh, in a number of ways, were used as a preservative and an antimicrobial agent and just got into foods because people used lead machinery and cookware to make foods with. Uh, but it was used as an antimicrobial agent in beverages like wine and cider uh, because sugar of lead is poisonous to bacteria in the same way it's poisonous to us. And Francel writes, quote, Vintners observed that filtering fermentation mixtures through lead sieves or dropping some lead shot into bottled wine noticeably reduced spoilage. A firm connection between ingesting low levels of lead in these beverages and lead poisoning was finally made in the early 19th century in part because of the correlation between outbreaks of colic of Poitou uh, and the arrival of wine shipments containing lead. Colic of Poitou, by the way, is the name for an originally mysterious condition, also known as Devonshire uh, colic, which was observed, I believe, beginning in the 17th century. But it affected uh, people in France, I think, mostly through wine and people in Devonshire, England, through their cider. In both cases, it was eventually determined that lead uh, was the was the culprit, lead used as a preservative in some cases or uh, because of production processes using lead-lined machines. Finally, coming back to the end of Raphael's message here, Raphael writes, Lastly, I have noticed Joe building confidence in understanding rheology and fluid dynamics over the years. <laughs> I, I don't know about that, Raphael, but I, I appreciate it. Uh, uh, he says, You both did a great job making the physics behind the teapot effect more accessible. Rheology is one of those areas where the concepts can be really hard to understand, but once you do, you will see its principles in action everywhere, especially in the kitchen. Also, I can confirm that the periodically mentioned on the rheology of cats is hilarious to rheologists in equals three. Uh, sample of three, I think. Thanks for the great show, Raphael. P.S. Unsurprisingly, I'm also a fan of Lauren and Annie over at Saver. Everyone should go listen to them, too. So, yes, thank you for the message, Raphael. And absolutely, people should go check out Saver. That is a podcast hosted by our friends Lauren Vogelbaum and Annie Reese, and it's a wonderful home for food nerds everywhere. Again, it is called Savor, S-A-V-O-R. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Tell them we sent you. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. 
Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, this next message about tea comes from Stephanie. Stephanie says, Hello, I was listening to the first episode on tea, and you got about 90% of the way to explaining one of my favorite facts about tea. In English, the word tea can refer to all sorts of beverages, including those made with Camellia sinensis, but also herbal teas and other uh, usually hot steeped beverages. The French language differentiates between un thé rhymes with bay, made with Camellia sinensis, and un tisane, made with other plants. The lack of this easy distinction in English can definitely cause some confusion. Interestingly, French also differentiates between caffeine and théine, or I think in English I've heard it pronounced theine, uh, but théine or theine, 
the caffeine found in Camellia sinensis in common parlance. At least uh, that distinction is made in the Quebec dialect of my husband and in-laws. I had wrongly assumed that this was another uh, example of French being more precise about tea-related vocabulary than English and thought they were two different chemicals, caffeine and taine. I only realized through listening to your episode that they are, in fact, the same compound despite the different names. I also learned today the English word theine, which means the same as the French one, but which I had never heard before, despite being an avid drinker of teas and tisanes. Thanks for always expanding my knowledge and my concept of what stuff can be fascinating, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Okay, this next message is from Andreas. Andreas says, Dear Robert, Dear Joe, I'm a longtime listener and currently very much enjoying your episodes about tea. I write in to tell you a little bit about a tea tradition in Germany, especially in the region called East Frisia. Even though I live around two hours removed from that area, several vacations there made me really appreciate the fine drink called Ostfriesen tea. Uh, it is a quite strong blend of black teas, almost exclusively Assam tea, and it never fails to pick me up on those gray and rainy days. There is a special ritual to drink it. I copied a text from a German website of one of the traditional suppliers of the tea and ran it through an AI translation for you to enjoy. Thanks for all the great content. I hope you will do this forever. Regards, Andreas. Uh, okay, so this is how you make the uh, Ostfriesen tea, at least uh, as mediated through an AI translator. It says, place the loose tea leaves in a well-preheated pot of fresh boiling water so that they are covered. Allow the tea to steep for three to five minutes, preferably in a kettle or teapot. Then fill the fragrant infusion with the remaining water. It is best to pour the finished tea through a strainer into a preheated serving pot and keep it warm on a tea warmer. Now comes the pleasure in the cup, as East Frisians love it. First, a kluntia, a white sugar candy, is placed in the cup. When the hot tea is poured over it, the rock candy crackles, creating anticipation and giving the tea a fine sweetness as it melts. A few drops of fresh high-percentage cream, which is not stirred in the East Frisian way, conjures up the famous volkia, the little cloud which makes the enjoyment of the tea perfect. The cream is added to the tea counterclockwise to symbolically stop time. That's nice. East Frisian connoisseurs divide the unstirred experience into three phases. The first sip of tea with cream is followed by the second sip of tea with cream. Some might have been lost in translation there. I'm not sure. Uh, which completes the three-tiered pleasure with a sweet finish. It offers the courtesy to enjoy at least three cups, which is why it is not called for nothing. Dree, uh, dree, dry? Dree est uh, Ostfriesenrecht, or three is East Frisian right. <laughs> it's better by a country mile. Uh, the, the small teaspoon is only used to signal to the host uh, after the tea has been poured into the cup that you do not want any more. Uh, so thanks for sharing this, Andreas. And I'd never heard of this before. I looked it up. I encourage everyone to go look up images of East Frisian tea to see the patterns left by the unstirred cream. That seems to be the most interesting thing about it. The, the visual 
uh, flavor. Coming back to the how the appearance of food affects the flavor, the appearance uh, of the unstirred cream dropped into the cup forms mostly beautiful but occasionally disgusting shapes. And I only say disgusting because there are some cases where it looks like uh, maybe it's when there's a bit more dribbling of individual drops. To me, this has the unfortunate effect of looking like the spots that form in a petri dish when bacterial colonies are blooming, uh, especially when the you know the translucence of the tea naturally somewhat resembles an agar plate. Uh, but in most cases, this tea looks lovely. I think it's a nice variation on that other beverage uh, art tradition, the the designs that people make in latte foam. So if latte foam is a bit more controlled, a bit more representative, maybe making a heart or a cat face or whatever, the East Frisian tea is a bit more abstract. It's kind of uh, fractal and emergent, but very cool. Thank you, Andreas. Okay, I think we're going to finish up today with a message about Weird House Cinema. This one comes from Pat, and it's in response to our Weird House Cinema episode on Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, which was the 1974 Italian-Spanish horror movie about how science is bad. And if we don't kill science once and for all, it will inevitably raise the dead from their graves with ultrasonic radiation. Uh, This movie was a real hoot to cover. And one thing we discovered uh, in that episode was this movie has a very long list of alternate titles. Uh, one was Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, which is okay, uh, but others were things like The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, which is strange because the movie does not take place at a Manchester morgue, though I think some scenes were shot at a Manchester-adjacent morgue or hospital. Uh, and finally, there was one title of the movie, which was Don't Open the Window, which, as far as we could tell, has absolutely nothing to do with the film at all. Okay, on to the message. <laughs> Pat says, Robert, Joe, the last Weird House was a good one. I'll have to see this one. You guys talked about the strangeness of one of the release titles. Don't open the window. Seems that this phrase is idiomatic in Spanish and means, quote, to bring something to light. It seems the title suggests that the enemy, science, is invoked and leads to horror. Thanks for all the fun, Pat. Pat, I've never heard that idiom before. Uh, I tried to kind of look it up and didn't find much, but I believe you. Other Spanish speakers in the audience, please write in about that. What, what's the deal with uh, with opening the window? Is science opening the window of knowledge? And thus, uh, according to this movie, uh, you know, don't open the window, like don't don't do those experiments. I'm not sure. But despite never uh, hearing that one, I do know of a a window idiom in Spanish, which is uh, tirar la casa por la ventana which basically means uh, to, uh, well, literally it means to throw the house out the window. And uh, from what I understand, this means like to go all out, as we say in English, to uh, spend a lot of money on something, to spare no expense. Uh, That's a really good one. Okay, I think that does it for the mailbag today. Just a reminder that we will be running Vault episodes this week and Tuesday of next week while Rob and I are out. But I should be back with a new listener mail episode on Monday the 27th, and then we will have more new episodes for you that week, probably on Wednesday, March 1st. In the meantime, if you're new here, this is the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we, we do different episodes throughout the week. Our core episodes published every Tuesday and Thursday. Those are most often about science in one way or another, but we like to jump across disciplines on Mondays. 
We read back listener mail in episodes like this one, though usually my co-host Robert Lamb is here with me. On Wednesdays, we do a short form scripted episode called The Artifact or The Monster Fact. And then on Fridays, when the week is done, it's time for Weird House Cinema, which is an episode where Rob and I feature and discuss a weird movie. They can be good. They can be bad. They can be classic. They can be obscure. All movies are fair game as long as they are weird. And uh, then finally, on Saturdays, we uh, we highlight an episode from The Vault, from the olden days. Uh, big thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.